This is a Federal News Network podcast. Federal employment is anything but simple. In fact, each year, thousands of federal workplace cases end up in the courts, federal district, appellate, and the administrative forums. Here with a look at some of the most important cases of 2022, Shaw, Bransford, and Roth Senior Counsel, James Heelan. James, good to have you back. Hi, Tom. Thanks for having me. All right. So cases happen in a lot of different venues. And I want to start with the Merit Systems Protection Board, which, of course, is not a judicial court, but an administrative court. But I think it's noteworthy that there's decisions coming out of there, if only because for the first time in years, they've had a quorum. Right. If I could pick the top news story in federal employment for 2022, not just an individual case, I would say the MSPB is back. You know, the the board has been hearing cases through its administrative judges at what you can think of as the trial level of the agency for the last several years. Um, But in 2022, the three-member presidentially appointed Senate-confirmed panel is back. They got a quorum in March, and the chairman was um, confirmed and appointed, put in her position in June of 2022. So now we've got three members, and they are issuing decisions on a multi-year backlog. Right. Are there any decisions from the board itself, the actual appellate, if you will, of the administrative judges, that is significant? In terms yes, of- it's incredibly significant. So the board lost its quorum right before the Trump administration began in January of 2016, and then lost all members altogether in the middle of that year. And so a backlog of appellate cases or appeals from those administrative judge decisions had accumulated for many years. And now the board, you know, as it's reconstituted, is going through those cases, and um, it seems to be prioritizing big decisions, decisions that uh, change the status quo of federal employment law, or really evolve it in some interesting way, or address new laws that have been enacted in the last several years. Any that come to mind, I mean, you're talking about Thomas versus Department of the Army. This went to the board level itself. Yes, Tom, I see you're looking at number 10 on my law firm's list of the top 10 cases from last year. And it's really two cases, Thomas versus Department of the Army and Chin versus Department of Defense. These are two cases that um, you know, the facts at issue occurred in 2015 or 2016. And seven years later, the MSPB board three-member panel is reversing penalty decisions from their administrative judges and changing penalties. So, for example, in Thomas versus the Army, it involved a manager who was making female employees uncomfortable in the workplace. And the agency removed that individual for conduct on becoming a federal employee. The AJ, or administrative judge, mitigated that penalty to a demotion and a 14-day suspension. The agency appealed and the three-member board said, no, they're not going to mess around with that kind of conduct in the workplace. It is a removal action. So we have an employee in an agency who were really in limbo for many years, waiting to learn what the final outcome was going to be. And the board said, it's removal. On the flip side of that coin, Chin versus Defense, this is an employee who took an extra five bucks worth of food at the uh, agency cafeteria. The agency fired the employee for it. It went through appeals. And finally, at the board level, again, I think seven years later, the board said, no, there's so many mitigating factors here. Look at the Douglas factors. Look at the other you know, reasons to give this employee some benefit of the doubt. And they mitigated the penalty and put that person back to work after seven years. Yeah, for $5 worth of food. I guess it's better to steal $500 million as a contractor than oh, $5 <laughs> for a piece of pie. You're not saying that. Saying right, we're it. beyond my practice area at that yeah. point. And I'm going to get to a lot of hot water for that one. Another case that caught my eye is number seven, who is a government actor? 
under the Fourth Amendment. And I don't think they mean the SAG union that I'm in, but <laughs> someone who's engaging on behalf of the government. In our number seven case, this is United States versus John Lewis. And it's uh, an interesting one in our top 10 list in that it came out of a circuit court that wasn't the Court of Appeals for the Federal Circuit, not the MSPB. This came out of the Fifth Circuit, and it deals with uh, the, the Fourth Amendment right to be free from unlawful or warrantless search and seizure. Now, when someone, uh, a member of the public, has um, law enforcement uncover evidence against them in violation of the Fourth Amendment, that person's remedy at the criminal court level is to move to suppress that evidence. And the trial courts will suppress evidence that was unlawfully obtained. Now, it can only be unlawfully obtained if it was by a government actor. If a private citizen finds drug evidence or weapons or something and turns it over to the police, that's not an unlawful search or seizure. So U.S. v. John Lewis addresses what kind of government employee can violate the Fourth Amendment rights of a member of the public. Hmm. In this case, it was um, a U.S. Postal Service letter carrier who, you know, the facts were a little interesting, found a hole in a box, opened the box, and found a bunch of methamphetamines. The defendant in that subsequent criminal prosecution moved to suppress and worked its way to the Fifth Circuit, and the Fifth Circuit said no. That letter carrier, while a federal employee, was not performing law enforcement duties, was not conducting a search for Fourth Amendment purposes, and so that evidence was admissible in that criminal prosecution. So great news um, because, uh, you know, evidence pops up everywhere, including in the federal workplace. We're speaking with James Heelan. He's senior counsel at the law firm Shaw, Bransford and Roth. And there were a couple of whistleblower cases defining significant change in duties for WPEA purposes and defining abuse of authority. Tell us briefly about those two cases. Right. Some big cases coming out of the board and the Court of Appeals for the Federal Circuit defining statutory terms. You know, the Whistleblower Protection Enhancement Act is just over a decade old, and there are still some um, statutory vagaries that had not been defined by the courts or by the board. And in this case of Scarada versus Department of Veterans Affairs, we had the board defining what it means to be a significant change in duties for the purposes of whistleblower retaliation claims. You know, whistleblowers are protected by statute against retaliation in the form of a significant change in their duties. And for over 10 years, no one really knew what that meant. So administrative judges had to sort of suss it out for themselves. And the Office of Special Counsel had its own individual take on it. Well, the board said, and this is, I, I, Tom, I assure you, this is actually a very helpful clarification. A significant change in duties for these purposes means a significant change in duties, responsibilities, or working conditions. So responsibilities or working conditions gives us a little more meat on the bone. Mm-hmm. It tells us that, you know, in this specific case, the set of the, the board said, that a generally unpleasant and unsupportive work environment failed to meet that statutory definition. So we got a little more to work with uh, than we have for the last decade. Right. So that means people that are moved to basements and into locker rooms and storage rooms as kind of, I'll get even with you type of thing, that is or is not part of this allowable. I would. I feel more comfortable today saying that that is a significant change in duties. Got it. Uh, for the purposes of the WPEA's retaliation protections. But just, it. you know, my, my managers stopped saying hello to me in the hallway. My supervisor, um, you know, is more formal with me than they are with the other employees in the workplace. I think under the Scarada decision, that kind of treatment does not rise to whistleblower retaliation. Okay. Gosh, we could go on for hours. But the number one <laughs> case was that went to the Supreme Court having to do with the landmark Egbert 
ruling called narrowing Bivens. What's going on? What did the Supreme Court have to say about federal employment last year? So this may not be new information for some of the federal law enforcement personnel who are listening, but Bivens is a case that came out in 1971 or 72 by the Supreme Court that said that the Constitution itself created these implied causes of action, meaning that the Fourth Amendment allowed lawsuits against individual federal employees for certain violations. In the Bivens case, it was uh, narcotics agents who had unlawfully searched and detained an individual in his home. And so that person was then allowed to sue those agents personally and hold them individually financially accountable. Well, the Supreme Court sort of expanded what Bivens meant and who it applied to for another, I think, eight years. And for the last 43 years, has not expanded it any further and has, in fact, begun walking it back. In this case, Egbert B. Boulay is the latest in the court walking back Bivens and really narrowing it, saying, if your case doesn't look exactly like Bivens, the original Bivens case, it's probably not going to succeed because the courts have overreached This is what the Supreme Court says. The courts have been overreaching. They have been putting themselves in the place of Congress. And the correct question for courts to ask about whether to expand Bivens or apply Bivens to any set of facts is really whether Congress is in the better place to allow that cause of action or not. And in most cases, the court said, the answer is going to be Congress. So the effect was to narrow the range of officials that can be sued for improper search exactly and and to narrow the kinds of things they can be sued for again bivens itself was about these narcotics agents who went into someone's home without a warrant and i think the word the court used was manacled that individual to a radiator and conducted a very invasive search of the person and of their home so Edward B. Boulay says, if you don't look just like that, your case probably won't succeed in the federal courts against a federal employee. Like if you have secret records parked behind your, your, (laughs) well, never mind, we won't go there. So there has been some fundamental change then in the contract between people and government and between government and itself then from these cases. That sounds right. Uh, That sounds like an accurate characterization to me, Tom. We have the federal judiciary trying to restrain itself. That message is coming from the Supreme Court. Federal judiciary should stick to, you know, what um, a lot of people call like originalists or conservatives, what the judiciary's lane really is. A big movement away or change from what people often call that activist court from the 1960s and 70s, where the court was being much more active in civil rights and other parts of American life. All right. Lots to think about. James Heelan is senior counsel at the law firm Shaw, Bransford and Roth. As always, thanks so much. Great to be here. Thanks, Tom. And we'll post this interview along with that summary of the top 10 cases at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Take the Federal Drive with you. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. Sean Ferguson, Senior Vice President of Government Relations and Chief of Staff to the Office of the Chairman at the Special Olympics, joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss the importance of leadership, inclusion, and community building. To learn more about how you can get involved with the Special Olympics in your community, visit specialolympics.org slash get dash involved. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. What are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned working with that community? 
Oh, uh, yeah, almost, uh, Shane, it's almost immeasurable. The things I've learned since I've been with Special Olympics. I, um, one of the things that drew me to Special Olympics uh, when I made the move over from, from the NFL uh, was that my mother, my grandmother, my aunt all took care of, of people with intellectual disabilities and, and, and physical disabilities as well. So all of my life, I was uh, interacting and around um, usually, usually young people, but also adults with disabilities. And so I, I knew that I knew that work a bit, you know, they, they basically were in direct care. And, and I will say, and on, I obviously will say about my, my family, my mother, my aunt, my grandmother, they're saints. Uh, but, uh, the, the men and women that do take care of people with uh, profound disabilities are, are really, um, you know, we, we can't do enough to salute them. Um, they're, they're really heroes. And, um, so I was, I was drawn when I, I, and I just saw that, you know, Special Olympics was looking for someone and I thought, well, you know, take a look at it and see, see, you know, throw, send in my information and lo and behold, I, I, I get hired and, um, I learn, uh, every day, almost something from, especially from our athletes. Uh, we're blessed to have a number of athletes that work here in our office in Washington, D.C., and, you know, uh, Terrell, who, who works in, in our mailroom, who comes by with packages and deliveries. Uh, if you're having a day that's, you know, getting away from you and you, you <laughs> coffee hasn't kicked in, but Terrell comes by always happy, always enthused, uh, has a, has a good story. Like it can just turn a day around for you. And, and, and you think of, I, I, you know, often when you'll walk away, I'll be like, you know, whatever was bothering me or whatever is, you know, stressing me out and come on, you know, like, look at, look at Terrell, like he, he, he faces everything with optimism. And, and, and I've seen that also in our going to competitions in throughout the United States and globally, you see people who have had everything stacked against them. You know, their parents, when they were born, were often told this is a tragedy and you should, you should, you know, send your, this child away. Don't, don't, you know, and kind of forget about them, Get, turn them over to the state or, or wherever. And, and, you know, that, you know, just kind of watch, watch your hands of it. Um, and, and, and in, in these cases, the parents didn't do that, thankfully. Um, and, but they've still faced enormous challenges, you know, and, but you see them out competing on the basketball courts or the football fields or swimming and, uh, and, and, you know, besting their times from, from their last competition. And they're so committed and just keep fighting through all the obstacles that they've had in front of them that are not just on the sports field, but also in growing up and finding education and finding groups to be part of and trying to find jobs. And, and, and I've seen so much perseverance and grit, uh, from the athletes of special Olympics that, uh, I, I, Tim Triver, my boss, the chairman, uh, says all the time, and I couldn't agree with him more. Uh, we get more than we give uh, working with Special Olympics. It, you know, we, and thank you for your very kind words about the work I do and we do. But but we're the lucky ones. We, those of us that work here are the lucky ones because I I said to someone the other day, you know, the things that I've been able to see and experience with athletes, you just don't get to do that anywhere. That that you know, it's a, and it's so unique and it's so. Uh, joyful and and uh, I mean we work hard and you know we we're up against you know the things that nonprofits are up against and you know the you know the issues of the day but uh man you see it, it and 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 the inclusion and the at Special Olympics no one's excluded 
you know, no, right. no one's excluded. Everyone yep. is equal at Special Olympics. It, and, you know, in a country that's quite divided on so many lines, politically and uh, socially, uh, economically, race and uh, sexual orientation and whatnot, but you go to Special Olympics and everyone's involved, everyone's welcome, everyone's equal. And I've learned that it's a model for our country and for our world. Uh, I, I just think that that if if people were involved in Special Olympics in experience the power of Special Olympics for themselves, I, I, I can't imagine that one help our country and help our world um, to experience that true inclusion and acceptance of difference. How, how do we get, how can listeners get involved in Special Olympics? Ways to get involved? Uh, tons of ways. So uh, volunteers, obviously, coaches, officials, um, and, and the thing that, that, that uh, Tim Shriver has done uh, and really pushed in the years that he's been chairman is the unified sports model that, that I mentioned earlier, um, where people, and, and it doesn't have to be, uh, it's not just school age, it's, it's uh, you know, we say nine to 99 or uh, year old uh, folks uh, that play on teams, uh, bowl together, golf together, play soccer, basketball together. Uh, people with and without intellectual disabilities competing on teams together. Um, and that is, I, I think, when you when you go back to the founding uh, of our organization, what Mrs. Tri- Mrs. Shriver was trying to do uh, was to, to uh, create inclusion opportunities for people with intellectual disabilities. And you see it at these unified sports events where people with and without are playing together. We still have traditional uh, teams where it's all people with intellectual disabilities competing with other uh, teams, all intellectual disabilities. But this model of inclusive sports and inclusive leadership programs and whatnot, I think is truly revolutionizing and changing the way people see uh, others with intellectual disabilities. That's just like, I mean, that's what we that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to bring people together and bridge difference and, and, and celebrate differences and that our athletes, man, are some of the grittiest people that you will meet. And, and, uh, and there's a lot to learn from our athletes and playing sports with them and interacting is, is how you'll learn it. Check us out at, you know, uh, specialolympics.org on, on our website, uh, that will link you to your local program. You can follow through the, the clicks of how to get involved and where, what's closest to you. You'll enjoy it. I can promise you that. Well, thank you very much, Sean. And, and to everybody listening, I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and we'll, uh, talk to you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.